Welcome to Ciao Bella, hosted by yours truly, Erica Firpo, travel journalist based in Rome. Each week on Ciao Bella, I explore today's Italy, speaking with artisans, designers, hoteliers, architects, artists, Parmesan makers, in other words, the creators who are making the Italy that you love. So sit back and join in. Hi, welcome back to Ciao Bella. This is Erica, and I'm here in Castiglioncello di Trinoro in Tuscany, a bit, I'd say about maybe 25 minutes southwest of Montepulciano, and definitely southeast of Siena in this beautiful hamlet. And I'm sitting here with Michael Cioffi, and we are in his hamlet, which is called Monteverdi. Hi, Michael. Hi, great to be with you. And um, Monteverdi, probably the most important and first thing to, to know about it in this particular hamlet is it's situated in the Val d'Orcia, which is this incredibly beautiful um, and really unchanged area of not only Tuscany, but the world. And so this landscape that uh, we're looking out on <clears throat> right now is um, the very same landscape that a Neolithic man who lived in the caves right there in Mount Chitona um, and then the Bronze Age man who did cave paintings there, um, and, and then human beings over the next uh, 10 or 12 millennia uh, saw. So th there's, a, th there's this immediate connection to a continuum of human beings, not just living, but also creating art, um, which extends all the way back to the beginning of, of um, art creators uh, of mankind forward. And it was really that beauty that attracted me to begin with. And, the, and then the feeling of being part of that continuum and inside the village. And I don't know if you felt it when, when we first, um, when you first came here, but I did and I feel it every time. And, and that is, it's not just stepping back in time, but it's really stepping out of time. So there's a timelessness that this landscape creates in one's um, psyche. That's actually, that was when, when you told me that um, earlier, that was one of the things that I also felt was that I, I don't feel like we're stepping back into a postcard at all. No. But I don't also feel like we're stepping into something new. Um, I, I do think you, you know, there is a timelessness here. And why we're here is because you said 18 years ago, you came and fell in love with the area. And then, right. and what, what was here with this? What, what, did, what was this area? Well, the buildings you see today existed um, many of them in a state of ruins. So uh, one of the things that really attracted me is the, the fact that this was more or less an unchanged medieval village, um, albeit with some decay. But a, a, as you've seen over the last couple of days, there are no paved streets, there are no paved sidewalks. The, the roads um, are really pathways through the village sort of meander in the same way they did um, 800 years ago. Uh, so what was here? A collection of buildings in total probably about 25. How many inhabitants were here? Uh, when, I, when I first came here, about 10. And one of the exciting things about it, because it, it, the village is really not just about, as we were talking about, it's not stepping out uh, back in time or stepping into some sort of postcard of somebody's idea of what Italy was like 
um, 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 500 years ago. And there's nothing fake about it. Um, there, there were 10 residents um, full-time, many of them who lived their whole lives here. But one of the, the great things that's happened in the last four or five years, and, and as a result of the restoration and the creation of Monteverdi, is that young people have um, purchased houses here. And, uh, and in speaking of them, they intend to have children and for their children to, to live in the village too. So it's, so it's a restoration project that is, is really not about just the past, but it's about creating a, uh, a sustainable life in, into the future. And it's very much part of this continuum about um, what's happened in the past, but also what's going to happen uh, in the future. And you know, let me just clarify for our listeners, um, when, when Michael is talking about Monteverdi, Monteverdi is, I, I would say it, it's both a boutique hotel right. and it's a concept. Um, or even would I say, probably I'd even go as far as saying it's a philosophy, a way of living. And um, Michael, you came here and you found abandoned places and you acquired them. You started, I think, with one villa. Right. And, I, and then slowly you now, from what I understand, you have a villa, a castle, and maybe two villas. Is that correct? Right. Um, and so you've created, you, you called it Monteverde after a composer, uh, Claudio, Claudio, Mon Claudio Monteverdi. Um, when, and when, what was his uh, time yeah, frame? Yeah, Claudio Monteverdi is really interesting because his life parallels exactly Shakespeare's life and, and Caravaggio's life. Huh. Uh, so they all lived uh, 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 at exactly the same time. Roughly, they were all born around um, uh, 1560. And Monteverdi lived the, the longest, and he lived to about 1640. Shakespeare died, I think, in if, if I'm remembering correctly, about 1620, something like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and Caravaggio before that. Yeah, right. Um, Monteverdi, where was he from? Venice. Oh, he was from Venice. Okay, so he was a composer, and which we listened to some of his music. And so you named this beautiful area after him. Yeah, and primarily because uh, um, I, I really wanted to name it uh, after someone who, who um, was related in a, in a really prominent way to the arts and the humanities. Because one of the things I fell in love with um, was the, the fact that that the surrounding landscape is so beautiful and puts one in touch with beauty in a very visceral way, but with natural beauty. And encountering that beauty, it occurred to me that this would be a great place uh, to have further, uh, a further relationship with beauty, particularly man-made beauty in the form of music, the arts, the humanities. And so it, it would be a kind of stage that one could come and be surrounded by this incredible natural beauty but then encounter really great uh, man-made beauty in the form of great music, art. So, so I created an artist-in-residence program. Um, we have a performing arts venue, which is really a 13th century Romanesque church, and then an art gallery. So that when guests here they come, they, their lives are enhanced not just by the incredible scenery and landscape, not just by great food, in wine, like and not just by hotels. a great hotel, not, not just by a great hotel, but 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 also a deeper in, in um, sort of a, a encountering of, of the arts. 
Well, I liked what you called it earlier. You called it a peak human experience. Right. right. And you talked a lot about, um, you used a term that I'd never heard before, and I, I really enjoyed it, which was psychogeography. Right. You want to, and I think that plays exactly into the concept of what you've created. So can you let our listeners know a little bit about psychogeography? Sure. Psychogeography was a, a term coined by uh, a group of avant-garde philosophers and artists and urban planners and architects. Um, that really evolved shortly after the, the Second World War, in, primarily in Paris. And they began thinking about sort of the horrors of, of the wars, and this was now in the early 50s, but also uh, the fact that uh, contemporary life um, after the Industrial Revolution, or as part of the Industrial Revolution, was uh, um, oppressive in, in a way that made one's life feel trivial and banal and, and um, not very fulfilling. And, uh, and, and so this, this concept of modernity as being um, life-killing as, as opposed to life-affirming is something that they um, wanted to create an aesthetic to, to resist. And they created this concept of, of um, psychogeography as a way of using landscape uh, to create a peak human experience. So they would, it, it might not be something as beautiful as the landscape we're sitting in right now today, but uh, they, they take the landscape and, and then build on it um, these experiences that then would create a peak human experience. And by that they meant, and, and what I mean, is a, a deeper awareness uh, about the beauty of life, um, a, a way of looking at life and experiencing life that takes one above the banalities and, and the trivialities of life and allows one to live sort of more deeply and richly and, and, and really happier. So um, I, I don't really want this place to sound like it's some sort of um, uh, you know green tea sipping, um, a Zen Buddhist uh, knockoff. It's really a place where one comes to live re richly and deeply and really has uh, both the intellect and but the senses um, uh, fired and, and uh, sharpened. Well, I think I think with you know you let's let's uh, kind of circle back a little bit to to tie in what you were talking about with your church because I know that you said I think it's every Friday evening or especially during, I think, the warmer months, there's a concert series. Yeah, there's a concert series where we have um, around 30 to 35 concerts throughout the year. So it's, uh, it may, and, sometimes we, we have two, maybe two a week or two in 10 days. It sort of depends on also the artist schedule and things like that. So, and, yeah. and some people that I've, that, I've known, that I've known have stayed here have told me that it's this incredible experience because they've met people that weren't staying here because some people have come from outside to listen, to come to the music. Right. And, but more importantly, part of the experience for them has been this community that they find that's created. They come, they're here listening to the concert, they're sitting in the piazza, which is a very tiny piazza. So when I say piazza, it is not Campo Fiori in Rome. <laughs> um, but it's a beautiful piazza with one of the nicest views I've ever seen, um, looking straight into the Val d'Orcia. Uh, wait, it's looking at... Mount Chitona. Mount Chitona. That, that part of the Bad Orchard, sure. And, um, but people have said to me, your guests have said to me that it's, they, they've, they've met friends, that, you know, they've, they, they've made relationships with people um, because this is the kind of place where 
it's a it's interesting this is the kind of place like you you've created a timelessness where people want to spend time yeah. they want to invest time you know which i think is kind of the, the opposite of timelessness which I, I really like yeah yeah the the um it, it you you've described very well this this concept of uh, of a peak human experience and it starts in the piazza it's it's um in some respects a very very tiny piazza it's framed by two buildings um, one is still a church and one was a church at one time which we converted into an anoteca and oh the anoteca was a church yeah wow. yeah and if you if you look at it closely you can still see the outline so a little bit like a proper uh, renaissance piazza is framed by important buildings usually a piazza is framed by a government building a commercial building and the church and the church and, and maybe a palazzo this happens to be framed by this incredible landscape of Mount Chitona. And, and again, it, that reflects this continuum of, of these um, artisans who go back, as I said, all the way past the Bronze Age. And there are cave drawings there that one can, wake, one can see the, um, uh, the mountain from the piazza. So that frames one side of the piazza, the Romanesque church, the other, the, the third is the... Um, the old church that now is in Enoteca, and then there's the hillside with, with basically um, um, flora uh, on it. Uh, so it's a different kind of piazza, but it, it lends itself um, to these peak human or communal experiences where you have a great uh, musician perhaps performing inside the church and then that reverberating out to the piazza or people coming out of the concert and then still um, under the effects of, of, of hearing a great uh, uh, soprano or, or a great pianist. Uh, so it's, um, it, 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 although it's a small piazza, it's a very powerful piazza. And I, you know, I, I think it definitely, you said um, it, earlier uh, we were in, we had a beautiful, um, we're, we're in a series, one of the reasons I'm here is because we're in a, a series of conversations about beauty and Italian culture, or Italian heritage, I would say, or cultural heritage. And um, you said something very lovely, which was, it's, you know, the objective, not the objective, but part of the purpose is fusing his history with modernity. And I think that is somewhat embodied in that piazza, which you've recycled. It's, you know, it's, you're, you're not trying to replicate what it once was, but you're not trying to change its essence. And that and, and that's case in point with having the backdrop of you know millennia of this beautiful mountain and having a 13th century church and then this new enoteca which is not it's just a recycled space. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about a little bit more about Monteverde in in particular in the sense that I, I've seen there's such and I, I know that other places have done this but there's such an investment in in the land and in the you know for example with your chef John Giancarlo, right? that um, everything, you have a garden, everything is grown locally, and if it's not, it's from this area, which, mm. by the way, this area is the only other place, I think, to me in Italy that has as much bontà, as we say in Italian, is, or much richness, is Sicily. Mm. In, 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 in this part of Tuscany, you can, you, know, you can have the best tomatoes, you can have the best of everything. And I know that's all coming into right. Monteverdi. Right. No, the one, there, there's so many beautiful things about Tuscany, but one is that it, it's one of the great um, agricultural regions of the world. It's a producer of in, incredible food. Um, 
And uh, Americans especially appreciate the fact when, when they come here, the, the, the fruits and the vegetables and, and the pasta sort of taste like it did in America 30 years ago. Um, so it is a really special place and, and um, our menu changes uh, seasonally and, and even more frequently for two reasons. Number one, to take advantage of, of this region, but also because it's important that food sources be sustainable. Uh, and uh, we're fortunate because we can we can do that and not sacrifice any kind of excitement on the menu because there there's so much there's such a, a great abundance because of this great agricultural region. And you're really lucky because you're also I mean I and I know I've seen I, I you know I I can't imagine how. Um, I don't want to say difficult, but it must have been a bit of a, you know, it was definitely a labor of love to come here and be the foreigner Correct. that's decided that you're going to, let's say, move the continuum forward of this place right. that, that was abandoned or, or, or was, you know, I, I do want to stress to everyone, there has been in, in Italy's history over the past, like the past 30 years, uh, a lot of these smaller towns have had a big flight of their youth that goes to the big cities to look for jobs because... Right there hasn't been work. And so that's what happened here. It's happened in, you know, we know in Abruzzo, many different little borghi. Um, but it must have been, it must have been slightly, uh, you know, you're a fish out of water, so to speak, coming, even though you're Italian-American. Yeah, yeah. Um, you get bonus points for that. <laughs> get, get some, because my name ends in a vowel, I suppose. Um, but uh, yes, I, I, I think what you're getting at is that uh, my reception was um, cool, and, and, but, but I considered it sort of a healthy skepticism. So you have this American, he's purchased a couple of buildings, he's restoring them, and the, the part of that skepticism is, okay, well, because he's American, he wants to create some version of Disneyland. So I did two things to really counter that. The, the first is to really engage in a very um, ethical and authentic uh, restoration. So we, we used uh, beams, uh, so the room you're, you're, we're sitting in now, you can see these beams. We, we didn't go out and cut down trees and just create new beams. We went and sourced and recycled beams from buildings that are uh, hundreds of years old. Uh, the same thing with stones to, to fill in gaps in, in the uh, buildings that were collapsed. We preserved all of those stones and rebuilt the building using uh, those kinds of materials. <clears throat> so when people began seeing that restoration, it was important. There was one really important step that I took in addition to the authentic restoration, and that is, uh, and, and I don't know if you've seen it yet, but on, on the top of the Borgo, there's um, an archaeological project that I hired the University of Siena's archaeology department to, to conduct a dig and, and to uncover the original castle, and I, and I say castle meaning a castle in, in the parlance of the, the late Middle Ages, which was essentially a military tower. Right. So The whole area was filled the, with towers, the, so this must have had... A... Yeah, because what happened in the Middle Ages were, were really a, a, a brutal period of time, and very lawless, because Pax Romana was over, and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, there was no one really to keep order, so you were... You, just had to provide your own safety. So one of the ways people did that is on these little uh, hilltop borgos, created a military tower. And then, um, and this is true of Montepulciano, Montalcino, 
and even Siena. Well, you, and you can see there's... You can, you can see them. Is, is that Montecitano that has the tower over there? And, no, that's Radicofini. Okay. Radicofini, you can see that. So they created these towers and then they built a little wall around it. And then people in the region would come for protection of this person who was strong enough to protect them. Like Game of Thrones. Right, exactly. <laughs> sort of like that. And then a, a second wall would be built and then people would live outside. And then a third wall. So all these little um, medieval um, towns um, have these three concentric circles. And that, that includes even Florence, mm -hmm. again, that way. Um, but when, when I bought the property on which this little castle sat, it was all underground. And there literally was a pigsty on top of it. And um, everyone said, oh, no, you should just build a house there because since there's already a structure, you'll be able to build a, another structure. And these were Italians who were saying this. And, and uh, my response was, no, I really th thought it was important to reconnect the village to its um, past, to, to its heritage, to this castle. And uh, although I didn't know it, it really existed because it was all underground. Uh, covered by a pigsty. So I went to the University of Siena to their archaeology department and and um, really retained them to do the dig. And you can find uh, the whole um, history of the dig recorded day by day oh. uh, in a, a link on our website. Oh, that'd be great. Uh, I did uh, see the I did see the official brown sign that they give to archaeological mm -hmm. digs. Mm -hmm. um, just out of curiosity, is Valdorcia Val is part of UNESCO Heritage? Yes, yeah. yes absolutely. Um, right. You know, because I, th I think there is, I, I know that that there is a, you can't build new structures, but if there's a previously existing right. structure, you can build. So that's what you're saying. People were saying, saying, hey, people were saying, hey, there's a structure you, there. You, just, you can, you can build on top because we don't know what, you know, you, right. it was there. It, it existed right. so you can have that plan. Yeah, but, but you chose the opposite. I chose the opposite because I, I thought it was important. If, if I was going to preserve the village in, in authentic ways is that that should include this very first structure which was this castle. So um, I, I had uh, the dig commissioned in, and then what you see today is, is what they uncovered, which was the, the foundation of this original um, military fortress. Uh, and, and then I, I committed to the Comune to make it an, ar an archeological park. So anyone can come into it and, and enjoy it. And, and of course, as you know from being there, Early, you can see almost 360 degrees. Yeah, you, I mean that was definitely the lookout point, and right. I, I, right. I, I can I could just imagine them. You called it. I don't remember the name of the town. Radicchio. No. Radicofini. Radicofini. They probably communicated across the way. Yeah, they they definitely did, but but also they communicated directly with Siena because uh, Castiglioncello was uh, a province of Siena. Ah. Uh, and of course, this is the period of time where you know, Siena and, and Florence were rivals and, right. and fighting. And it was a source of great pride um, for the Sienese because uh, the other towns like Montebuciano and Montecino were controlled by Florence. So oh, I mean, I mean, Montecino, they're both very close. Yeah, that very, must, very, very that close. Was, this was a pivotal point then. Yeah, about 15 kilometers from Montebuciano and about 40 kilometers for Montecino. But from this military tower, going back to signaling, they, they could single they could signal to the uh, uh, Porta Romana in, in uh, Siena. How far away is Siena from here? Uh, Siena is about 70 kilometers. They could signal that far? They could signal oh. yeah, with, with flags, because keep in mind the tower 
rose up and so already sitting on about an 800 meter peak uh, so, so you could you can um, you could definitely from that vantage point um, see the um, the southern gate of and now today yeah. you can walk up and you can see all of the valley from there and you can read a book like I tried to do today. Um, but I, I got so caught up, I, I just kept taking pictures. Yeah. I wanted to read, but I, I just couldn't stop taking pictures because it was so beautiful and this, the clouds were fantastic today. It was amazing. Now you said also something, you, you, know, you, just, you just said right now, something about reconnecting with the history. And one of the things that you did was with the schoolhouse. So there used to be a school building and you've recycled that into a culinary institute. Yeah, we, one of the things we thought was important to do for our guests uh, is to create a culinary academy because people want to come not just to Italy but to Tuscany for the reasons we talked about because the food is so incredible um, to, to learn how to, to cook uh, Tuscan cuisine which, which of course is a, a cuisine mostly of peasants because uh, the Tuscan history is, is one of farmers and, and peasants but the great thing about that cuisine is you can make incredibly flavorful things yeah. um, for almost no money. And uh, it, it's all about the, the spices and, and the blending of ingredients and the freshness of the ingredients. So people quite appropriately want to, to learn how to do that. So it's something our guests wanted. So I, I wanted to create a culinary academy with state-of-the-art um, um, stovetops in ovens. Like those two gorgeous and, ovens and are amazing. And, uh, and we have 12 individual uh, modules that, so each student, we, we can do 12 students at a time, um, can come and learn how to cook this Tuscan cuisine. But it was fortunate because I, I was able to purchase um, the old school building, which was a school for children uh, for about 200 years. And so we converted that into the Culinary Academy. So again, it, we're, we're, we're using something from the past and, and creating this continuum into the future, which is something, you know, civilizations have done forever. You know, living in Rome yeah. yourself, that you, when you go into um, a, a great uh, a church in, in Rome now, at one time it was uh, a Roman pagan bath. And then probably at one time it was a synagogue. And then on top of that, then the Catholic Church built. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's like my, my little secret. I always tell people when they go to Rome, I say, well, go to a church to ask the priest if you can go under because you'll always find something. Right. <laughs> and it'll be, it'll be a temple. It'll be, it'll be something. Um, I, I think what you've done is really amazing. And I think what I, what I also think is amazing about it is you haven't tried to re recreate the Tuscan country house. No. Instead, you brought in Ilaria, Ilaria Miani who's the designer of this. And um, I had a brief conversation with her because when I walked in here, so I should let everybody know, it, there's, it's not, again, it's this timeless concept. We're not in a very modern place and we're not in this typical Tuscan design. I, I walked in and my first reaction was like, I felt like I was in a Mirandi painting. Yeah, um, fair. Because the, the, there's this, there muted colors, this nice harmony of colors and the, the furniture, the, the pieces, are sculptural. They're very, very sculptural. Um, and, it, I, and I saw that also in the kitchen. I, no, the color of the kitchen, I was, I, in the color of the kitchen, I was like, yeah. I, I'm, I'm redoing a kitchen at my house. So I was like, wait a minute, I've got to get Elodia. Yeah, um, yeah with, with respect to the, the color palette, we tried to do two things. One is, is again, 
connect the 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 palate to the palate of the Valdorcha. So, as the seasons uh, um, go through from spring to to summer to winter, the the fields change colors. Uh, obviously, the trees change colors, and and those colors are reflected in in sort of initially in spring the green that we're sitting in right now, and and then eventually to a uh, an earth tone. Um, sort of um, the taupe kind of color and then to the darker color of, of winter grains. Um, and the same thing is true of, of the fields because eventually the fields get plowed over and then, then they become um, uh, really dark. Um, we brought the outside in. So we did that, but also at, at, at the same time we studied the, sort of the palette of the old Renaissance masters because they were doing the same thing. Just several hundred years earlier. So when when you look at the color, for example, in uh, the Culinary Academy, and you go back and look at, let's say, a Giotto painting or a Cinarelli painting, you'll see that uh, that sort of lazur blue uh, color. Yeah. And um, and, and so it was really a, a great exercise because we saw what the old masters were doing, and then and the, but they were. Um, imitating what they saw in nature in terms of the sky, the Tuscan sky and the land and, and um, their surroundings. So it's, um, it's sort of this um, double reflection of the land. Now, I know that you have a whole professional career, but it sounds like you were really hands-on and really involved with Ilaria with the design. Yeah, no, very much so. It was a, a real collaboration, and, and we would uh, we would discuss and and uh, wrangle over every detail. And uh, there were a lot of late night emails back and forth because she would be getting up and I would be thinking about going to bed. And um, so, but it was it's really a beautiful collaboration. And uh, as you know, in one of um, my talks this weekend, I sort of likened it a little bit to Dante and Beatrice. Uh, she being my Beatrice and uh, me being sort of the lost soul of, of Dante, but it's been a great collaboration. Well, it's, I mean, I, it, to me, it's a perfect <clears throat> meditation. Now, my last question for you is, do we have an inkling? Is there, is there, what's next in the continuum? Um, well, um, one of the things we're thinking about um, is to, to create in the village um, a, another uh, sort of dining spot that would be um, uh, a wood-fired oven that we could make breads and, and um, pizza and things like that to, to have a more informal uh, dining um, area um, to complement sort of our fine dining restaurant, which is called Votorede. Um, so that's one of the things we're thinking about. And, and then another... Uh, is maybe to have um, uh, a small, intimate uh, movie theater. Because the, the Val d'Orce, as you know, is the home to many uh, incredible movies. We've also had many movie makers, uh, including Marco Filiberti, who you heard. Uh, who spoke today. Who yeah. spoke today. A great Italian filmmaker um, who've come here. And, and um, believe it or not, Fellini would come to Castillo and Cello. Really? And Fellini famously, you know, had a mistress in Kinjano. And, and so <laughs> he, he would, he spent a lot of time in the region. Kinjano is a, a small town for your listeners, who, uh, only five kilometers from here. But he, he would uh, obviously come and stay with her. Um, 
and then he would come up here uh, to, to see the things you and I have been talking about and, and generally to hang out. Um, in addition to Fellini, um, great contemporary um, uh, movie maker Wes Anderson has been here and, and, um, and actually wrote the Grand Budapest Hotel. Here. Uh, here. And if, if you look at his movie, uh, it, Wes does a, a book about all of his movies. And um, he's famous for a lot of things, in, including making breathtakingly beautiful movies. I think the Grand Budapest Hotel is, is his best. Um, well, you know, it's funny, now that I think about it, the color palette, you, you can see it. I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's, there's inspiration. <laughs> and, and one of the things Wes does is he creates a storyboard for the whole movie, which is the little drawings that he does um, almost of every scene. And his very first storyboards for the Grand Budapest Hotel are on uh, Monteverdi stationery. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, he's, he's published oh, it, he's published it in, in the book. I'm going to have to take a look. That's take great. Take a look, yeah. It is movie by the Grand Budapest Hotel. So I was thinking it would be fun and, and interesting uh, for our guests to interact with people like Marco and um, Filiberti, who is a great uh, avant-garde filmmaker in Italy, and people like Wes and, and, and others. I mean, there's such a rich history yeah. here of film. That would be, right. that, I, I, I love that part of the continuum. Right, and, and, and all your, your listeners know some of the great movies here that were made here, like Gladiator and, and the, English, uh, the patient. English patient and, and um, life is beautiful. Uh, right, right. Yeah, I mean, actually, it's funny because I was I was looking at the I was looking outside and if you if you look outside my my room that you can actually see this little white path with the cypress trees. Right. And um, my husband, being an archaeologist, particularly loves Gladiator, so I called right. him and I said, "Oh my goodness, right. I, I can see no, where where the Gladiator was." Right. Right. No, it was filmed not very far from here. Um, so it, 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 there is that almost um, unbelievably beautiful movie-making natural set. And uh, so that's, that's something for the future, I think. And especially, you know, if, if, um, if this pattern of young uh, families moving into the village, in part because of what we've done here, it'd be sort of nice to have a, a place for them to go and, and experience that particular art form. That'd be great. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I will be your first guest. I'll be Good. a constant. I love, I love the magic of I love cinemas. I love movies. And I think that would be a, a, another jewel with all of these beautiful virtues that you have here. Yeah, so. going back to your, your comment here a little bit earlier about the piazza, I think sometimes when I'm, I'm sitting in the piazza and, and having a glass of wine and looking out at Mount Chitona and this, this incredibly beautiful but simple Romanesque church, like Romanesque architecture is, I, I really think I'm on a movie set. I mean, it's that, it's that amazingly beautiful. I, I took a picture today, and it was right, there was a little bit of rain. It was, it was actually, no, it was before the rain, but the sky was, you know, doing theatrics. Mm -hmm. And so it was like someone had painted the sky, and you could tell it was about to rain. But I got this incredible shot that looks like someone painted it. It looks like a backdrop for a film. So it, it does. It, it totally, you feel like you're, you know, the, the magic of movie making. Mm -hmm. That's right, and then and then it changes, you know, throughout the day as the the sun moves across the sky, and the the colors on the fields of of uh, poppies and grain and olive trees and vineyards begins to change, and so it all changes on a continuing basis. So it's this incredibly um, movable feast of of color and light that goes on all day long, even when it rains. Well, I did enjoy it raining today. 
I really, really thank you for your time. I'm so happy. I can't, I can't wait um, to walk outside though, because we've been sitting in this room, but I'm looking outside and we're about to have the sunset. So I'm gonna have to say thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Ciao Bella. You can find all my episodes on iTunes, and if you have time, subscribe, rate, and let me know your thoughts on the podcast. You can also be part of the podcast by donating. Find Ciao Bella on Patreon.com, where with as little as $1, you get behind-the-scenes photos and videos as I travel all throughout Italy. To learn more about me and my work, go to my website, ericafirpo.com, and follow my Italy adventures on Instagram at ericafirpo. Ciao Bella! And a very big thank you and hug to Massimiliano Yonta and Dis to Dis Studios, the producers of Ciao Bella who continue to make me sound and feel great.